Welcome back to the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of the show's sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Online Mentorship is 20 hours of top class strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes, check it out and help support the show. Next, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and Altus Education, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Yosef Johnson at Ultimate Alley Concepts. Ultimate Alley Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Alley Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore and program design delivered by coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all of the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beef's, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, head over to the show notes to get the links to all of the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus360 and Altus Education, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before we get into today's interview, I just wanted to let all the listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel that you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you'd be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into today's show. This episode's guest is Dr. Ben House from Functional Medicine Costa Rica. This is Ben's second appearance on the podcast, having previously been on the show back on episode 119, which is linked up in the show notes. I'm sure many of you are very familiar with Ben's work. He's an absolute legend and it was an absolute pleasure to have him back on the podcast. On this episode, Ben and I discuss how much hypertrophy is necessary for health, I asked Ben to discuss how to optimize testosterone production. I asked Ben, what testing does he like to use to assess someone's testosterone levels? Here we discuss the differences between blood, saliva, and urine. I asked Ben, what interventions does he like to utilize to enhance testosterone production? I asked Ben about how concussion can lead to leaky gut and a leaky brain barrier. I asked Ben, would he ever recommend someone to decrease their daily step count to enhance hypertrophy gains? I asked Ben, how does he set an individual's caloric needs and macronutrients? I asked Ben about the polarized topic of energy in and energy out versus hormonal regulation when it comes to weight and body composition management. And finally, I asked Ben if he could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite and why? Guys, this was a savage episode with Dr. House, and I hope you really, really enjoy it. 
Okay, Ben House, thank you so much for making time to come and talk to me today. I know you're a super busy guy with all the projects you have on and just everything that basically goes on in your life down there in Costa Rica. So uh, thanks so much. Just for any of the listeners who may not be too familiar who we are, which I would imagine won't be too many people, and if they haven't listened to our previous podcast on my own podcast, just for the scene on the background. Uh, so I have a PhD in nutritional sciences. I've been training since I was 13 years old. Uh, this is what I do. Uh, it's just every day. Like This stuff lights me on fire. And, and I think the idea that you don't know that much and you kind of figure that out as you go. And like the more you know, the, the less you know, for sure. Uh, and also, like you realize that for the majority of people, information probably isn't that important. And not to say that bad information can't get people in trouble, but I think a lot of people are searching for like this, this right thing or this one marker or this one thing that will put, make sense of this entire organism that is likely uncomprehensibly complex. Like that to me is, there's never going to be that one thing. There's never going to be that simplicity. So we have to try, if you're a coach listening to this, you have to try to understand the complexity of this. But if you're, if you're, if you're just a general population, you want to look good and feel good you probably want to really filter out the amount of information coming at you you just want to do you just want to find someone who's really good at this and then figure out what are your high hit rate items and then do those things right so if if you're if you're coming off the couch and you have zero aerobic base right you probably need to work you need to accumulate some level of work or general physical preparedness like you're not going to be able to go do be good at crossfit or something crazy like that unless you build up this kind of this base and so that's where i think coaching and the art of it is being able to assess where people are and i think of everything from the lens of muscle hypertrophy because i crossfit is like the if we think about the exercise physiologist like ultimate conundrum like that is crossfit like how am i going to be good at every single time domain every single exercise and how am i going to how am i going to maximize that whereas if you think of if you're if you're a power lifter your main focus is strength right it's mm-hmm. it's simple is this going to make me stronger or not if it's not going to make me stronger fucking get it out of here right and then hypertrophy is it going to make me bigger or is it not going to make me bigger is it just going to suck up time and so i think if we get to these extremes we can start to appreciate things a little bit more um, and most of your clients like it or not are they're not powerlifting clients unless they really care about deadlifting and squatting and, and benching like then if they love that stuff then they turn into a powerlifting client but most of your clients are hypertrophic athletes or they are body composition clients or they god forbid we call them bodybuilders like that is the vast majority of the gen- like bodybuilding is just a better it's the best way of dieting that we found uh so you and people it's always interesting to me so you'll have these like bodybuilding coaches and like them deadlifting or them doing chest flies will get like thousands millions maybe millions of likes but then they post a picture of them on stage and nobody cares like it's like there's this huge drop off like it's it's almost like oh my so bodybuilding has this negative connotation and like nobody like for some reason nobody wants to be called a bodybuilder but the vast majority of our clients they need to put on muscle because muscle is going to be we talk about like everybody's worried about longevity right now from like, oh, you need to fast or have mitochondrial health because you'll live longer. What the f- are you fucking lifting? Like strength, grip strength, muscle mass. Like those are the things that prevent you from dying, right? So that's, that's I'll just get off my soapbox real quick. But that's who I am and, and what I, so everything I see from the lens 
of muscle hypertrophy in that I care about strength, but not as much as I care about just getting bigger and more jacked because I think that's what the majority of people need to care about. That's kind of brought up a, an interesting question for me lately in terms of, you know, muscle hypertrophy and it's, you know, it's potential benefit on aging. You know, we want to do want to hang on to our muscle for as long as possible, but like anything, you know, the difference between um, medicine and poison is usually dosage. So when it comes to like hypertrophy, like obviously now we, we're going to be talking about like elite bodybuilders, but obviously there's a threshold point where carrying that much muscle mass around is actually detrimental to longevity, particularly like we're talking about like how much the heart then has to work to pump and blood out to all this, this, you know, very expensive tissue. So like, is that something you've thought about where like, is there, do you think in the future there'll be this sort of like, it's going to come down to the person's body type and like their atropometrics and all that, where it's kind of like, yeah, about this much amount of muscle mass is, is going to be like, you know, around ish a sweet spot. Like, of course, we're never going to get exact for you to help you longevity wise. Yeah, we already have uh, some form of that number and it's actually very low. Just like, uh, like how much do you need to deadlift throughout your entire life? Like I wrote a post about this, about like adequate strength and adequate muscle. Mm. Uh, I can pull out the exact number for yeah, you. Doing, but it's gonna, doing it right now. I love when people do that during an episode. You can see your mind's working on it. Yeah. So it's, it's basically when they did this research, what they found was that muscle mass, maintaining some level of muscle mass is going to be protective inside of every BMI category, whether you're underweight or extremely overweight. If you maintain this very, it's all based on uh, height. So it's going to be a, a, a ratio based off that. And it's not that much for like a, for like a 5'11 dude, which is like the maybe 5'10, 5'11. It's going to be like 50 pounds of appendicular skeletal muscle mass on a DEXA. And I love this because you, you know that people are, their muscle mass after the age of 40 or 50 is probably just going to, if they don't train, it's probably just going to start going down maybe 10% per decade. So they're just going to lose, they're just going to lose some muscle mass. So if someone at the age of 45, if they get a DEXA and they only have 55 pounds of appendicular skeletal muscle mass, it gets complicated when we get into axial skeleton because there's so much stuff going on. Yeah. So appendic appendicular skeletal muscle mass is probably a better metric. And so if someone has 55 pounds of muscle at the age of 40, I know that by the age of 60, they're probably going to be close to sarcopenia. Mm. So I can see that if I, if this person doesn't train, they're literally fucked. Okay. Yeah. So it allowed, and then we know females are going to be even more at risk. Like everybody. Yeah. You can make the argument, maybe testosterone, it's all related to mitochondrial health. And like, if you're healthier, your testosterone won't, yeah, but it's going to go down. Like overall like aging like reactive oxygen species like the accumulation of stuff things go down and you look at caloric restriction research which is the longest trial I, i'm thinking we're aware of is in humans like two years uh, like mechanistic type stuff and you see that you're going to get a lowering in testosterone so mm -hmm. like 25 to 30 percent like the fastest way to drop your testosterone is is to calorically restrict and then not sleep um so this longevity component kind of has it's in direct opposition to your hypertrophy goal. So I, and to answer your question, like, yes, being a bigger mammal is probably not in your best advantage if you want to live longer. Like I completely agree with that. Like there's going to be the law of depreciating returns. There always is. Okay. I just don't fuck. I just don't care. Like I live at extremes. I'm a very extreme personality. Like if you, so for the vast majority of people, it's probably getting to a fat-free mass index for the vast majority of guys. It's probably getting to like a fat-free mass index of training for like three years. So basically not being a novice. Maybe you can get to an FMI of like 22 or 23. That's going to be based on your height. Um, and, and that's 
that's probably going to be easy to get to and easy to maintain. Mm. And Pat always talks about this idea of money, right? Like, so once you get to a household income of like $75,000 a year, making more money isn't going to make you any happier. It's just going to yeah. suck up more of your time, right? So it's probably the same thing with muscle hypertrophy. Once you hit this, once you hit this level of like, yeah, you put on, and it's probably not even that high. You put on this level of muscle mass, you're functionally capable of surviving in this world. Uh, then you're going to have, but if you're listening to this podcast, you probably don't think like that. Um, and so I think when you're working with a general population, it's kind of freeing because you know, like you don't have to get them to this elite level. You just mm -hmm. have to get them. You just have to get them a little bit better. They just have to be like not a baby human. Um, and, and so that's, that's how I think of these things in terms of if you want to be an advanced athlete, like if you, if you want to be at advanced at powerlifting, if you want to be, if you want to be really fucking good at anything, your health is probably going to be compromised. Yep. Uh, and that's, and then at least, you know, that at least you're not, you're, you're not becoming a competitive crossfitter for health. Like that's a really, really, really bad idea. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if you still want to do that, like it's your life. Like I still, I still care. Like I train six days a week and I love training. It's, a, it, it keeps me on board. It's like my anchoring habit that I care about everything else. Um, and it, it keeps a lot of other things. It keeps me more productive. Uh, so it just keeps a lot of other things constant for me. Um, and so that's how I think of the, the kind of the depreciation of returns on, mm -hmm. on your investment. And for the majority of people, they don't have that much time anyway. So they can probably do exactly what they need in three to four hours a week. Yeah. If they, if they just walk around the rest yeah. of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I heard you speak about that on a few podcasts. So with Dr. Hobbs and obviously the one you're doing with uh, Dr. Sherry, two great podcasts, which I'll link in the show. And just for any of the listeners, Ben gives a pretty detailed uh, account of his background, you know, where he attained his PhD and how he got to feel with your father getting sick. And you've also, we spoke about that in our previous interview as well. So people can go to those resources because we want to get right into the good stuff. So I was saying, yeah, like uh, you've touched on some of the stuff there already that I want to talk about. So kind of testosterone, mitochondria, and then nutrition and training. Um, just with, we'll get into nutritional training a little bit later, but we'll just start off with, with testosterone because that is sort of has, well, you've been known as the guy that the go-to guy for that sort of, um, area of research. Um, and I've heard you speak on it and, and, you know, without question, you're definitely a great resource on it. Why do you think it's becoming such an epidemic? Like, you know, low testosterone, a lot of males. Um, I heard you give a stat saying that. If for, you get a 40% increase in all mortality when you've got low testosterone. Is that correct? Um, you can answer that in a sec. And uh, yeah, just, just let the listeners know how, why, why is testosterone becoming such an epidemic in terms of low levels and how can we assess it and then optimize it and you can take it away. So if we think about testosterone, testosterone to me, is, particularly in males, it's, it's very hard to, uh, in my opinion, measure hormones in circulating females, uh, postmenopausally females become much more like males, uh, mm -hmm. because everything becomes more consistent. Uh, and, and so that's actually an interesting conundrum and in that as females age, they generally become more male like, and then as males age, we generally become more feminine. Yeah. So there's this, this kind of this, this, uh, this sex reversal almost not, not completely. But I think when we get into testosterone, like, why is this an epidemic? Well, it probably comes down to we're measuring it more. Like there probably were always that like over the last 30 to 40 years, like these people probably all already existed. Like, uh, we know that 40% of males over the age of 40 or 50 will probably have lower level testosterone. But 
we have to think about the money aspect of it. TRT is now a $5 billion business in the US, uh, at least. And, and so then when there's that amount of money in play, there's gonna be, you know, diagnostics are gonna increase. Uh, there's, there's prescriptions are gonna increase because people wanna make money. And so they, there's, there's good and bad things from this perspective. I think if we want to think about testosterone in general, we have to think about, okay, why would this go down? What are the reasons that testosterone would go down? And well, we have the first big two are like a traumatic brain injury, which we know is going to lower testosterone mm. acutely. Mm. It's it's not it's not like a matter of if you get a concussion, a grade two or grade three, or like if you get a TBI, it's not a matter of like if testosterone is going down. It's a matter of if it's going to come back up. Wow. Right. So if testosterone, if you get a, like I had, I probably had five concussions before high school. Like we're talking like knocked out in the hospital, and so. At six weeks, yeah, like crazy. My life, like crazy. And who knows how many I had in high school college. And so the so is that from football? No, I, well, yeah, it's backyard football, like hitting a light pole. Like I had a huge goose egg on my head, like out to here, just knocked out. Woke up in the hospital holding the ball. Uh, also, yeah, like just, just, just mad fuckery when I was little. Like just, uh, uh, just a, a real quick digression because I don't want to stray you away from your thoughts there. But like, I hear that so often from guys who grew up in America. Like, yeah, loads of concussions growing up when I was like playing football. And most of them were like, yeah, football. And it's just like, in Ireland, I don't know any of my mates who had any like serious concussions growing up. It's just mad. Yeah, we would play like backyard football. Um, I mean, that was the thing. Like, it was kind of weird. Like in the nineties, like everyone would, you'd have your neighborhood and it like, no one had phones. Like, I don't even know how it happened. Like looking back, but like, we would just like fucking coalesce at some kind of, field and like normally it was like it was like in somebody's backyard and we're like jumping over a lawnmower and then the camper is to the touchdown and like somehow like some kids just get knocked into the camper and i i just like so many times we were just out pads just playing mad tag of football this is a bad idea looking back but it was definitely one of the memorable i loved it as a kid um, yeah you're a kid you love that shit and just uh just a real, again, another real quick thing, and then I'll, I'll let you get to it, is uh, you're so right, because I, I grew up to an era where there's no mobile phones, but for whatever reason, you just knew where everyone was. You're just like, ah, I, I bet you they're down there. And then it just, everyone's there, what are we at? And we're just, for us, it was like we were playing like uh, our, our traditional games here in Ireland, like hurling or football, or sometimes it would be soccer, rugby, depending. We actually usually used to go whatever was on. Like if Wimbledon was on, we'd be there fucking banging off tennis. And then if it was like the rugby season, we'd be out playing rugby, banging off each other. And then if the hurling or football was on, hey, we used to play everything and anything really. But you're right, though. Yeah, when you're young, you love that shit. You'd be, should we be in bits at the end of the day? Lads be rowing to, taking the ball home, telling lads to go fuck off. Because there'd be no referees either. You know? No, oh, no, no. It's like, it's like street basketball. Like, calling on fouls. You call a foul. You're, you're a bitch. Like, don't call that shit. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and also, too, it was great for growing because there was winners and losers back then. You know what I mean? You lost, and you'd hear about it for the next day, too. Oh, well. dude, you had a bad game? Like... You would just have to eat shit for a long time, man. Exactly. exactly. Eat shit is the exact words I'd use. Oh, man. And you were just waiting for that next game. Like, you drop a you drop a pass in the end zone. Like, oh, man, you're just going to fucking hear about it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, All right. So, you were on uh, yeah, concussions with testosterone there. You were, that's where we left off. Yeah, we got, to, we got to number one. So, like, you got testicular trauma and TBI. So, I think if you get a TBI and your testosterone doesn't come back at six weeks, I think that's like four to six weeks is generally where we'll see it start to come back up. Because when you get, when you have those traumatic events, like it shuts down thyroid axis, adrenal axis, like that's just what it does. Um, Cause all those are regulated at the level of the brain. And, and so that's a big thing that I think a lot of times doesn't get discussed is that yes, this persistent hypogonadalism from trauma 
is an actual thing. Okay. Um, and we're talking like not a small percentage of TBIs, like 40 to 50%, if you pull the studies, like of people have this persistent hypogonadalism after they have these um, TBIs. And then the next thing you have is like genetics and fetal and microenvironment, which we can't necessarily do a lot about. Then you have a lot of drugs, like, SS, like a lot of antidepressants can do it, um, blood pressure meds, a lot of, so I get really, really mad when coaches talk about testosterone, they maybe have a client with low testosterone, they don't know these things, because yeah, you put them in the sleep bucket or you put them in some one of your functional buckets, but they have all this other stuff that is really inside the medical model that you don't know about. And so then you're just dangerous because you're just putting everyone in your, you know, your cortisol or stress bucket. Yeah. But you don't you don't have enough knowledge to really to be able to identify like what bucket should this person go down? What is my differential diagnosis? And most of it I can't diagnose. I live in the jungle. And so I would hand that off to somebody else. Like maybe they need an MRI. Maybe make sure they don't have a fucking pituitary adenoma. Like this is all, this is all real stuff. And I think the ne so we have drugs, uh, obviously previous anabolic steroid use will do it. Uh, it's a lot more prevalent than people think. Mm. I have not, I have nothing against, I have nothing against drugs. Like I'm a, I'm, I'm a fairly amoral individual uh, in that I think the only level playing field is probably let everyone do everything. Um, and cause that's, that's almost what's happening already. It's just, we have Wada, which can't, which is always behind. So it's, it's kind of like, if you get, if you get popped, you get your, it's not a drug test. It's really an IQ test. Um, yeah. and Icarus, if you've never seen Icarus, like that will make I'll you, have... Oh dude. If no, if you have, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen Icarus, like realize that there's an arms race like and so like this is this is bigger than drugs this is, this is like this is nations like nations want to win like this is this state is a big sponsored baby state sponsored you put the kgb right behind him like that's nuts dude I'd, so love to, I'd, I'd love to really know like the chinese one i'd love to just if they could get into i think they're already doing crispr i think they're already doing genetic stuff i think that i think it's already happening why wouldn't it I have a story here, but another very small digression on this. Just, just, just to like let you know how crazy, not how crazy. Well, it actually wasn't a surprise, but how the depths that the Eastern Bloc would go to, and also the the Chinese. That um, a friend of mine, she's doing a PhD in um, PDs for female athletes and how that screws up their whole fucking physiology. Um, and she got a load of old research. Uh, she didn't. I asked her where she got it from. She said she just she was able to dig it up. So uh, I'm only taking her word on this. But she was saying that she got some old research from the Eastern Bloc and even some stuff from China. And apparently they used to get their female athletes pregnant and get them to terminate after three months because there was like some massive like physiological hormonal boost that like helps enhance their training. So basically they get them pregnant and then they get them to abort like three months later. Like, I, like I, I don't know if that's even true or, or what that, but like if, if that was the case or if there was something to that, that's just fucking madness. It wouldn't surprise me though. It doesn't. Like you, you get into those societies where like everything is about like the group. And it makes sense that you would expend the individual at the sake of the group. Like most of our research is in weird populations, white, higher socioeconomic classes. Like you, you start taking this research into Asian countries and like people that don't think like Western people and everything probably changes yeah. um, to a certain extent. Like physiologically, we're obviously the same. Um, but so the big things for me from like a, from a, an MD or whatever you want to say, like conventional medicine, we have, 
TBIs, testicular trauma, we have genetics, fetal microenvironment, all these things that Kalman syndrome, like all these all these things that need to be assessed, right? And then you have drug interactions. And then you have the last one is probably the most prevalent is a varicocele, which is just like problems with blood flow in and out of the testicle. It's actually mm. like 10% of people have them. Um, and so that's something that if you fix it, it, it could, because you're not maybe not getting testosterone out. Because remember, inside the testicle, like you have insanely higher, like 5,000 times the concentration of testosterone than you do in your blood. In, intra intra testicular testosterone is, is insanely high and and so that's one of the reasons that about two-thirds of men get infertile when they go on trt is because all of a sudden your testicles aren't making testosterone anymore and the testicles need to, if they produce testosterone even a little even not even hypogonadal right um you're gonna have insanely high amounts of intratesticular um testosterone and so mm. and that's one of that's TRT was a fertility drug proposed like some of the research in the initial stuff was like hey can we make men infertile by doing this um, and, and not all men are we I don't necessarily know why that is um, but that to say you only need one good swimmer to make a kid um, <laughs> and so varicocele so those are the kind of the big things that you need to be aware of you need to research if you're if you're talking to people about testosterone uh, you need to you need to know those stuff because if you don't know that stuff, you're you're probably you're dangerous, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then then we get into like the functional matter, maybe the not even like just good, just good knowledge and like doing your job, just this idea of mastery. And what are what's where's the noise and where's the stuff that we need to think about? I think a lot of people are worried about environmental toxins. And like pesticide exposure right now, there's a big thing with Monsanto of mm. like they got the guy got 280 million. Like so, this is this is funny to me because the internet wants you to believe that you are insanely fragile, insanely fragile. Like just like anything is going to tip you over and make you die immediately. And obviously yeah. that you are the most robust system ever to walk around on this planet. Man, the fucking shit your body can put up with is outrageous, dude. They have these guys in Thailand who literally spray like all the pesticides that everyone's scared of they spray it on the field no safety anything and their testosterone is the same as the normal population that's not to say that maybe all of thailand's testosterone is screwed up because their environment is that bad but like they're higher than mexicans in the study so like they also did this try the same type of thing in mexico as they look at so they it always helps to look at extremes. So if you look at extremes, like what is the worst case scenario? This dude is literally spraying the pesticide you're worried about that has parts per billion or something in Cheerios and he's spraying it and just literally eating it. And he's, he's okay. Like he's, as far as testosterone, maybe his cancer is through, but as far as like testosterone, he's, he's the same. But Ben, that, that's because ignorance is bliss. Because like when 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 they when they test like a cell in a in a test or in a in a dish and they expose it, something's like yeah, but like that cell isn't like having a thought about a positive or negative thought. Like that guy out there spraying pesticide, happy as Larry. Like oh, I'm gonna go with the lads tonight, and I'm gonna be with the family, and he's and he's out in the sunshine, and he's all this, and hasn't a clue about what's going on. So like in his whole like psychology, he's in a great place. You know what I mean? He loves life, and it's just like. The, the, cell, the cells that are being exposed to that pesticide are a lot different to the cells than fucking Johnny, who's up in fucking Mexico, well, Johnny, Mexico, whatever, Jose in Mexico, who, who like knows about this stuff gives me cancer, and he's like, I'm getting cancer right now, and all you think is, I'm getting cancer. So, like, I mean, the whole energy and everything around that, it's just like, it's completely different, and I don't want to bring this into like a woo thing, woo, you know, energy and medicine and all that, but you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, 
everything everything is like we we take things in such isolation it's like and just a real quick digression here to make my point like the glycemic index we were like look at white rice it's so high now it's like who eats white rice on its own though like just a big bowl of it like very like yeah, some people glycemic do. index is worse oh yeah exactly so so worthless. It, it, the we, fear the fear pisses me off yeah we, we take things in isolation we forget about the context that needs to be put in place around everything i think this is also very i don't know very american this it's it's like this first world idea of we don't have this stress so we're going to create this stress by like worrying about everything we can worry about like i don't see that in necessarily costa rica like they don't worry about these kinds of things as much and that's bad that's bad too because like you're thinking about long-term health outcomes but there's got to be some middle room where if we're going to worry about something let's at least have it be something worth worrying about um and i'm not saying that that pesticides and like genetically modified organisms aren't something to worry about and aren't something to fight i'm saying like you eating these things isn't going to kill you uh there's some there's some susceptibility like that there's always going to be a specific population like maybe you have a pond one snip where you can't get rid of these organic pollutants these persistent pips persistent pollutants and so that could be a thing is like, yes, there's this side, there's this small percentage of the population, like same thing with ketogenic diets. There's just 10 to 20% population that, you know, if you eat dietary cholesterol, you eat a ton of saturated fat, it's going to raise your lipid content. Mm. Um, and if you got inflammation underneath that, it's probably a bad idea. And so I think, I, I think like this idea of what, what should we worry about with testosterone? If, if you're listening to this podcast, Yes, don't buy plastics. Don't have a BPA thing. Like that's it goes unstated. Like don't eat phytates. Like it, it do everything you can in that realm. But once you've done everything you can, it's not a big rock to worry about. Yeah. Uh, and like don't be the person that's like freaking out at a restaurant because they put your leftovers in a plastic dish. Like that's not helpful. That's that's gonna hurt you. Um, be, because you're believing that it's gonna hurt. You. Exactly. Exactly. I think from the, the biggest hit rate items that we have in, inside of our space, if you're a health coach or whatever you want to call yourself, is you're either someone's too skinny, like just look at any kind of bodybuilding case study. You get under 10% body fat, 9 8%, say goodbye. Say goodbye to hormone function, right? And, and so that's, in the obviously there's going to be people that break every rule, but females it's going to be it's all the to me females it's going to be dependent on probably fetal microenvironment like how how compensatory how adaptable that brain is going to be like how much is it going to freak out when it doesn't have energy um and so as soon as they start seeing some kind of menstrual irregularities and they're not we know from the research that females aren't athletic females aren't necessarily good at, at kind of picking that stuff up um they'll kind of they'll obviously work themselves into a hole and so I, I think we want to be careful of that. So if someone is, if someone's, you know, 8% body fat and they have their training all the time and they don't eat enough, we can expect that their thyroid function is going to be suboptimal. We can affect, we can expect that their testosterone function is going to be suboptimal. These are just metabolic adaptations. But once we get them, but, and, and that they might be okay with that. So that's where the cost benefit, like they might, being lean might be how they make money or something like that. It might be important to their psyche. It might be attached yeah. to that. And in that case, it's like, okay, these are the consequences for this action. Are you going to die? No, but uh, you may not be able to put on any more muscle because that's not even to say that's another discussion in general. We generally think that it's impossible to put on muscle 
when you're low testosterone, but like females have a 20th of the testosterone that males have. Uh, and relatively they put on the same amount of muscle mass as males. So yeah, yeah. it seems there seems to be like different buckets. And this is like James Krieger has an insanely good article on this. There seems to be like levels of testosterone probably the best way for me to kind of explain it is Arnold was like an FFMI of 26 to 27. Okay. And that's what we think is probably attainable, maybe 28, 29. And if these numbers, you don't know what these numbers are. Like uh, Phil Heath had a FFMI of 34. Like Phil Heath is my height and on stage he was 250 pounds. Like that's me plus 60 pounds of muscle. Guys. Like, uh, and so what we think is possible somewhere in this genetically is this 27 ish. And so I know plenty of people who are 26, 27 on an FMI, like jacked, jacked individuals who have testosterone of 400 or 500. That's not to say their testosterone were always that way, but this idea that testosterone is going to somehow crush you uh, is a very, in my mind, losing, you're losing a lot because you can always probably put on muscle to a certain extent. Even if you're from an exercise training hypertrophy mechanism, stoking M toward doing everything through mechanical mm -hmm. tension, you can always put on more muscle until you reach the point where you can't put on more muscle, where we, which we don't know where that is, right? Mm -hmm. um, but taking any kind of exogenous hormone is going to put on muscle outside of that. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so that's why we see. Okay, so all these guys, before we had all these ancillary drugs, um, they were FFMI 26, 27. That was like how big you were going to be on stage. And then all these ancillary drugs came in. Testosterone didn't necessarily change much. And now these guys are fucking 290 mm. and six foot tall, like, and they're shredded. And so it, it's, that's where we can kind of think, all right, so where is this level that you could possibly get to? Well, you might be able to get above 25, but it's going to be hard as shit. Uh, to get there and a lot of you're gonna have your life is going to have to look uh, very very different and that's I think the point of that is if you are if you are having FMI of 20 like so you're you're five seven and 155 pounds and your testosterone is 400 like don't think that you having low testosterone is going to somehow like n not let you put on muscle like yeah. that is a that is a fallacy like that that is fragile thinking like no you training and getting your life together, you will be able to put on muscle. Mm. That's what I see. That's what I, that's what I see doctors doing. Like, Oh my God, your testosterone is at 300. You'll never be able to put on muscle. I'm like, no, you fucking can. Um, don't say that. Um, cause you don't know. And, and just do the things right. Like, yeah, if they put, if you put them on TRT, if you put them on, you know, not TRT's dosage, like 125 megs per week or something. If you put them on 600 megs, we know from the basin studies, like, yeah, they're going to put on like, fucking eight kilos of muscle in 12 weeks like but that's not from training and you can make the argument that that's not even a good idea because what do we see in bodybuilding we see like really weird injuries like people tear their bicep tendon like uh yeah because you got strong too fast and your collagen system couldn't catch up yeah so that's where i worry about like 19 year old kids like oh my god like i want to look like that instagram dude and they just start pat they have no idea what they're doing and they're just fucking pounding trend and then they're going to have, they have these crazy injuries because their collagen system is not built to handle those loads yet. Yeah. Yeah. And just a, a real quick digression, because I know we're probably going to get some 
some uh, some people uh, commenting on our discussion there on pesticides. Me and Better not saying that pesticides are okay. <laughs> we were I'm just not saying that at all. Yeah, yeah I, I, I know you're not saying it, but people are like, so are you saying it? No, no, that wasn't the point we were trying to make there. By the way, <laughs> with that little discussion beforehand, there is some research which is crazy in small sample sizes where like, some of these, like some hormes- of these, hormes- increase, like, yeah, yeah, some yeah. of these increase testosterone. There's some, they're like. They, in the in this in the discussion, like please do not take these results out of context. We yes, have a small yeah, sample size, yeah. but I think the the takeaway message is that the human system is a lot more robust than, than people on the internet exactly. want yeah. you to believe. Um, and there's always going to be exceptions to the rule. There are always going to yeah. be people yeah. who have susceptibilities, uh, and then there's always going to be that that crazy person who trains ten hours a day, doesn't sleep, and somehow testosterone still at eight hundred. You're like, fuck that guy. Yeah. And, and but that guy's cool like that's an outlier like that's cool to me um and there's not gonna be too many of them but so that's that's good i just wanted to put that in there because we were like so are you saying no that's not what that's not the point yeah i can see the internet oh yeah yeah well so on robbie brookfog i guess they were saying pesticides are grand you can just be, <laughs> you can just be in the field all day drinking it in as long as you're happy and no that wasn't the point we were trying to make there so as so long as you maintain 50 pounds of muscle on your appendicular skeleton yeah, the main point uh, is we're not we're not as fragile as we want to be. Yeah, because I see that too. You know, people oh, do you do you use body odorant? I hear that's like really heavy in your liver, and it's like if you use it like once in a while, I'd like to think my liver is robust enough that it can be like oh, this is okay. I mean, your liver. Just think about like alcoholic cirrhosis, like what that thing can come back from. Like, oh man, dude, the liver is is a beast, man. It can it can come back from so much stuff. Like alcoholics don't generally have problems until they're in their 60s and 70s and they're crushing liquor um i used so. to live with this old man uh what a way to open a the line there but i used to live with all my he was the landlord of a house <laughs> I, used, I, used, I used to live in right and i swear to god ben he was a fucking miracle if i ever seen one the abuse he gave his body and he was still able to function like he must have drank about 16 cups of coffee a day, smoked two packs of fags, was an alcoholic, God bless me. Obviously, had a lot of shit. had his demons in his closet, like we all have. But, like, I was just like... He probably just, lived to, like, 75 or 80, right? He's still alive. He's in his, like, yeah. 60s. But, but I, I was like, I was like, you're going to be dead. Next, surely next week. It's, nope. it's, you know, I was like, next week now. That's, that's as far as he's going to get to. Like, <laughs> meet him in the road five years later, and he's still potting along. It's just like, how oh, the... You know, it's just like madness but anyway back on to testosterone what sort of tests do you like alcohol can do it too so oh, alcohol yeah. alcohol will lower testosterone like i'm sure that guy was hypogonadal like 100%. oh yeah yeah he was yeah. he was fucked in every way uh it's like nice nice fella to some regard but like you know just as you just treat as you're not gonna necessarily like that guy's got seventy thousand addictions in kind of inside of his current environment like let's just all agree that we're probably at that guy at 65 like yeah. the odds that we can change him that human are outside of, inside of his current environment probably very slight yeah yeah I, I wasn't ever trying to change him i was just bringing that up to say i was fascinated like he just made me realize how much a human body can can resist like how robust a human body can be well i think a lot of people are like so i get i get a lot of people my age who want to help their parents or their grandparents <laughs> and i think i think you need to re- like my grandparent my grandpa died he was an alcoholic his whole life he drank my grandma and grandpa drank a bottle of vodka of 1.75 liter every week like and so yeah, like yeah. that's part of his life that's part of how he grew up it's like so just love them and try like you trying to change them inside of their current environment and everything that they build and all the habits that they have very unlikely very unlikely but that's not to say that it can't happen yeah it's just like having this it's going to take 
very massive life changes that they might not be willing or want to make. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, just going back there, testosterone testing. So obviously there's blood, saliva, urine, your thoughts on that. And then uh, we were kind of getting into some, maybe the big rocks people could do. Obviously sleep is one. And then you spoke as well on a few other podcasts about, you know, people think of this paradox that like, you know, excessive stress drives down testosterone, but then stuff that's kind of good, like for mitochondrial health, which is then in turn good for testosterone because testosterone gets made in there, is other stress like fasting and the appropriate amount of exercise. So maybe just touch into testing and like some of the big rocks like sleep and obviously exercise and then nutritional hydration. Well, fasting acutely lowers testosterone because it's lowering energy availability. Um, Long term, like, so the testing, I'm always going to go to blood. There's way too much noise in urine and saliva. Like you're talking about, like, even testosterone is in, like, I can, so it's, it's, is it it not not worth doing all of them though? Because isn't blood bound? Like, whereas is the saliva not like, uh, what are you trying to figure out? Yeah, I suppose, but I think it was I think it was Brian Walsh. I might have heard said you know if you're gonna do and you had the money, do all three of them because you could, you get a more more of a snapshot. But listen, listen to actually Dr. Cruz there lately. He was saying like if any of those lab tests have to travel, he's like they're not worth a shit. Then he's like if they have to go air travel to a, to a to a facility. He's like he he's talking about because of all the ionic radiation and travel and all that shit and the light exposure to them. He's like you're not even it's not even worth it if you can't just get it tested then and there. I think like, what are we trying to do? Like, are we trying to figure out if someone is like, are we, testosterone is a canary. I think like measuring testosterone, the only reason you're measuring testosterone is to try to get into some kind of differential. Where are you going to go? You're measuring testosterone to figure out where the hell you're going to go. Testosterone isn't the end point, right? It's something that you maybe track. Um, But to me, I'm going to use blood just because it's the cheapest and most available. And it yeah. has, it has what we saliva. You're trying to get at free uh, urine. You're trying to get at metabolites. Like what's happening with estrogen, what's happening through the system. Um, we just don't have a lot of information on the adequacy of those tests. Like, mm. yeah, they, co- yeah, they correlate like saliva, saliva testosterone correlates with, Serum testosterone, great. So it correlates with the measure we want it to. Why wouldn't we just measure that? Um, is my and, and so it, to really, it comes down to okay. If they do have low testosterone, what am I? What are you going to do? Mm. Are, do they do they fit in this more medical model where you need to go send them that way, or are you going to work on you know body composition? Are they because we know if someone's overweight, if their waist you know their waist to hip ratio is through the roof and they're fat. Like God, we forbid we say the word fat. Like they're overweight, they're obese, they're over fat. They are going to have like they're going to have problems with testosterone. Like they're gonna have mitochondrial dysfunction, they're gonna have a lot of stuff. So why is measuring more values of testosterone? Why is that going to be helpful? You know why it is. Yeah. They're 50 pounds overweight and they don't sleep. Okay, so work on those things before you start worrying about a metric. Now TRT could help them lose weight, but are that's a band-aid at that point. Like it but that person might not be ready from a habit change perspective to do any of those things. And so maybe TRT gives them a new lease on life for six months and then they feel like shooting. Mm. Uh, and so I think we, we have to understand what do you need to look at from the functional model? Well, obesity is going to be your baseline. That's going to, that we know that if someone is overweight, they're going to have, it's not a matter of if they have mitochondrial dysfunction, it's just a matter of how much. Because you can, you can, have, you can say fat here, by the way, I have no problem. That's my podcast. Fat fuck. You're fat. But, so I get mad about that because 
most, all of energy regulation is subconscious. Okay. Mm-hmm. So fat, sh- fat shaming is a terrible idea. It doesn't, right. it's, it will never I'm, work. I'm, jo- I'm joking, by the way. <laughs> and, and so all of, like we humans like to think that we are, we can cognitively control all this stuff. We like to think that we're not, you know, in, in, in some terms slaves to our environment, but we are, we, our environment generally rules all, mm-hmm. especially if you're like, think about all the things that a professional CrossFitter has to manage cognitively. I have to imagine all their exercise load, all their calories, I mean, all these things that they're cognitively managing. Now, that is indirect. What they're doing is in direct opposition to evolutionary biology. Like, it's why would what would you do any of that? Like, yep. no one is going to run up a mountain for fun and then not eat as much as they could when they found it. Like, yep. the optimal foraging strategy. Like, it's amazing to me that every human on this planet is not 800 pounds. Okay. Uh, and so that says that this homeostatic mechanism at the level of the hypothalamus is, is doing something very, very well. Uh, it's just, so most people are 40 pounds overweight and they've had 40 Christmases. And so how are we going to change that? Well, we're going to have to be in some kind of energy deficit. And then we get into this insane world of like, oh my God, fasting is so metabolically helpful. Well, is it fasting or is it caloric restriction? Like, it, it, so it's hard to tease out the difference between these things. Like, yes, if you have an extremely obese person, you can use very, very high deficits and not have decrements and not have too much metabolic adaptation. Yeah. But if you're 14% body fat and you try to go on an 800 calorie diet, like you're going to lose muscle. That's a terrible idea. Yeah. So that's why the importance of context is so important. Like, yeah. am I going to use, am I going to use a fasting protocol in somebody who benches 380? Fuck no. Um, maybe on a, on a non-training day, I'm like so. Fasting is in direct opposition to muscle muscle hypertrophy. I would not, I would not eat. I would turn off mTOR. I would turn on AMPK. Um, and so, yes, great. You might get some longevity benefits that we don't know if they apply for humans. Uh, and all this research is cool from a mechanistic standpoint, and cells and animals and all that stuff. But is it going to apply when we bring it into the human model? When there's so many variables in play, I don't know, and I'm not willing to take that risk. I'm not willing to, you know, live at a 25% caloric restriction, have my testosterone tank in order for me to maybe live another five years. Maybe, right? It's just that's not a that's not a cost that I'm gonna agree to pay mm. so uh, what, what are we recommending here though with people whose testosterone is suboptimal so again i know i've mentioned sleep and and you, you can touch on this sleep but what other things are you commonly having to recommend with people like what are the sort of big rocks if you're if you're underweight and you're under eating that needs to be fixed if okay. you're overweight and you're overeating that needs to be fixed Perfect. those are the those are the big rocks now the other big things that we know are that inflammatory cytokines do a number on both levels, at the brain and at the level of the testicle. Well, so, we're talking about IL-6, tumor cross factor alpha, all them bad boys, nf yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We're, you're going to have, there's, and so LPS, endotoxemia, like these are, they've done endotoxemia studies in, in humans and you will get a direct lowering testosterone. Like that's, even small doses of LPS just put in the bloodstream. So that's kind of a, that's the biggest indicator that we have. Like, okay, now there might be some connection with intestinal permeability. Now mm-hmm. we have it. So now we have intestinal permeability. We have, we know that intestinal permeability is going to knock out mitochondria. So now you have this, this kind of this, okay, now we get into that functional space of, all right, yes, this mechanism does exist where inflammatory cytokines can knock down testosterone production, knock down your ability to put on muscle, knock down everything, inflammatory cytokines. But on the flip side, we have a signal to noise ratio. So if, 
inflammatory cytokines are probably a really good idea to have really low, but then spike them and then you adapt. But yeah. if your inflammatory cytokines are way high all the time, you can't even get a spike. Yeah. Um, and, and so that research is cool. Like COX-2 inhibitors, generally maybe they inhibit your ability to put on muscle if you're young, but if you're older, they tend to help because they have these high levels of inflammation and then they, it's, it's really interesting. And so I think we want to, everything is contextual. So if you're inflamed and if you're, over, if you're overweight or obese, you're going to be inflamed because adipose tissue is inflammatory. Yeah. Right? So if you're, if you're inflamed, if you have a bunch of GI issues, if you have hematochromatosis, like you have too much iron, which is also going to eat up mitochondria and, and we know hematochromatosis is related to low testosterone, uh, you can work on iron. So how many guys, how many guys are overweight, not exercising, so they know you're going to have mitochondrial stress, they're not seeing the sun, they're not sleeping, and they have GI symptoms and they consume a shit ton of red meat. What are you going to work on? Well, you need mm -hmm. to work on all of it, and you got to you got to think about this individual inside of their current environment. Okay, so they're guy they're a guy who lives in West Texas. Good luck. <laughs> I mean, really, yeah, really. Yeah. Uh, and then you have overtraining and recovery, and and the research on overtraining and under recovery affecting basal levels of testosterone is not good. Uh, it doesn't look like it affects basal levels of testosterone when you control for all the things that we've talked about previously, like under eating, all that kind of stuff. And so that's not a good indicator of overtraining. The best indicator of overtraining is your motivation to train. Like it's like, and then are you adapting? If you're adding more to your training protocol and you're getting worse, you are, you are in that overreaching overtraining state. Mm. Uh, and so I think a lot of people like want this metric for, overtraining like we have the cytokine hypothesis we have the glycogen hypothesis which isn't true it's probably more like i think it's it's probably the cytokine hypothesis if you look at the endurance research um where you have all these inflammatory cytokines you have all this reaction of species and then you get it's just too much for the body uh, where is that too much i don't necessarily know some people are going to be able to handle a lot um and adapt and i think it's just like the acute to chronic ratio is very appealing to me. Like you probably want to stay outside of that dangerous window from an acute to chronic standpoint. And just in, our, the goal for all of us is to increase our chronic training load over time. Yeah. Um, and so how you do that is, and, and then the flip side of that is you're trying to increase your chronic training load over time. All of these fundamentals matter so much because Pat and I talk about this a lot. What is the thing that knocks out an advanced athlete? It's some kind of injury or it's some kind of sickness. And so those are the things we have to avoid at all costs. Because if, if you get sick for two weeks and you can't train, now you're talking about you really lost eight to 10 weeks getting mm -hmm. back to your, now getting back to your acute to chronic ratio, you really lost two months of your year. So it, it becomes about avoiding these bigger stressors. Yeah. Yeah. It's a uh, few things on that is that like, again, everything just seems to live on a spectrum in that, like, it's like, as I said earlier on this podcast, the difference between medicine and poison is dosage so we know with stress acute stressors good for the most part chronic stressors not good for the most part and uh, just on that point there about mistraining it was a really good point that a, a nutritionist who works over here with a professional rugby team his name is daniel davy really good guy works also too with the top gaelic football team here in the country dublin and he made a really good point saying that he says that one of the things he actually educates his players on, aside from just basic nutritional principles, like, you know, calories and macros and micros and timing supplements, is food hygiene. And he was just like, food hygiene is something that no one talks about. It's like really important. If you're like food hygiene is shit in your house, and he's like, you get sick and you miss training for two weeks. He's like, and he's like, if you're missing training for two weeks, your whole career over a 10 year career span, he's like, 
that's like half a year of training. You just miss your whole career. So like he made a really, really good point there and just like some basic sort of tips there in just basic overall health. A question I want to ask Ben is on the concussion thing. Um, can, I think you said this on Rusheri's podcast, concussion or concussions, they open up the brain blood barrier and then does that have an influence then on the gut barrier as well? Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Could you, you maybe you just say that? Yeah, very quick. Yeah, you get a TBI. You get a TBI. You're getting also think about the screen doors in the human body. You have the blood brain access, blood brain barrier. You have the the obviously the intestinal permeability or the that's a very that's a one cell thick barrier between you and the outside world. Uh, and then you have your skin. And so generally, when you get a TBI, all of those will open up inside wow. of 24 hours. Is uh, there is there a paper on it now? Obviously, the, the brain makes sense because you're you know that's where you're taking the hit, but. I know there's the brain good access that, you know, T's Karazi and really expanded on that in his book, Why Is My Brain Working? But, uh, like, is is there a paper to say, like, you know, a bang to the head actually opens up the gut? Yeah, they have those papers. Wow, yeah, wow, you look at Zonulin, look at Zonulin including, like, you'll, you'll pick those up. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. The, the TBI research with, uh, with American football is pretty extensive. Like, yeah. so just, it's, there's a lot of stuff out there. Like, if you want to get it, it's very scary. Um, honestly, like, the, your brain is, your brain is not meant to be knocked, knocked around. Yeah, like it is, it's, it, when you, when you get into that stuff, it, it definitely helps you appreciate uh, the gravity of kind of what we're dealing with, with these head injuries. Mm. Now, the question I wanted to ask you. Um, so again, on some previous podcasters, the, all the, the podcast you've done on, on the ones like Dr. Hobbs and, and for sure, there's another one too you've done, like, is the legendary podcast, I think. Um, they were savage, but you spoke on uh, those about the importance of getting your step count. So for, for more of the lay person, you know, there was this kind of like 7,800 steps reg- helps to regulate your appetite. A question I have on that is, if you're someone trying to put on muscle, right, and you're trying to get strong as possible, but yet you're on your feet all day walking around, again, this kind of goes back to a spectrum of like, you know, context and like, you know, being at one end of the spectrum versus the other. There probably is like, like a, a point where like you know too much step count is not good for you for the goals that you want you know because i remember mike israel even said like he's like, if you, he's like if you walk too much you'll actually turn on ampk and and actually turn off m4 if you do a shit ton of steps every day and your goal is also to like be putting on a, as much muscle mass as possible and like i suppose if you do look at the classic bodybuilders they're lazy as fuck outside of their training now their training's horrendous so i'm not taking that away from them but that's all they did like the top guys are just training and they just lazy around all day so what, what would your take be? And I know we're talking about more of an outlier here or like the exceptions to the rule here because most people work with, le- with gen- general people who just need to like lift two or three times a week and then outside that just like walk. As James Fitzgerald said, if most people just did some bodybuilding two or three times a week and just lots of walking and drank water and slept well, he's like, most people would be fine. You know, obviously at decent, decent enough. But it's just like in terms of someone who's like, Ben, I want to get as jacked as possible, but yeah, I'm on my feet all day or, or else I think I need to be doing loads of walking and you're like, mm, you know, you can actually like be less active. Would that ever be a strategy maybe? Yeah. If I had like a hard gainer, maybe, uh, I, I think like 8,000 steps is not very hard to get. Like, I think like from a productivity standpoint, like if it's seven or 8,000 steps, like you gotta be pretty sedentary to not get that. Like we're talking uh, maybe an hour of walking throughout the entire day. Like you, from a productivity standpoint, you probably want to get up for five minutes every hour anyways, just to yeah, yeah. like move blood around. Um, so I, I think that there's going to be a depreciating return uh, for sure. And I think this happens from a weight loss standpoint too. Like we, we know that this energy inside of the equation is, is a very 
which is regulated uh, at the level subconsciously at the level of the brain appetite yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so but we also know that the energy outside of this equation is also insanely regulated like it's why you can't run marathons to eat pizzas like no you get fat like it's if you look at the Ponser research like it's constrained so there's just probably this top end that all of us can get to where you know for me it seems to be like 3500 calories like that's my body auto regulates at 3500 calories it figures it out anything more than that i start i'll start to gain fat um and so that seems to be my window and if you're if you're really really if you're intent on putting on as much muscle mass as possible, you want to keep everything constant and progress training volume. Mm -hmm. So you want to, so if you are an advanced training, you need to be in a caloric surplus. So you need to be that probably you can argue if you're willing to put on fat, it can be higher, but anything past 250 to 500 calories, probably even lower, like 250 calories above excess above your needs. Um, and then you're just trying to drive muscle protein synthesis. So you need protein every four to five hours. Israel would agree with me on that. Um, and so that's why fasting, if you're trying to put on muscle is a really bad idea around your training. You always want protein in the system. If you're training, I think you always want protein in the system regardless. Um, because it doesn't seem, if you look at the fuel for the work hypothesis, like having protein doesn't seem to mess up any of those like low glycogen train low kind of scenarios. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I think from our spectrum right here, the original question is like, can walking screw up your gains? Yes. I think you being uh, like a very OCD person and trying to like take it out, like 15,000, 20,000 steps. I think that's not helpful, but I think moving around, moving blood flow around, just not being a lazy son of a bitch. I think that that can be helpful, but keep everything else constant. Like keep track maybe you track an abdominal caliper maybe you track all you track your macros you track if you're if you're trying to that's the other thing so we have this law of depreciating returns in terms of like everything but in terms of putting on muscle mass you're gonna have a law of depreciating returns and you are gonna have to put so much cognitive effort if you want to progress that you are gonna have you're it's not a matter of if you're gonna have to track calories it's it, it, you are like you're gonna have to track that because your body unless you want to get unless you like dirty bulk. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not a fan of that strategy. I think like once you get above 15% body fat, like you're going to, you're going to induce a lot of those inflammatory mechanisms, which mm. isn't probably a good idea. So I'm a big fan of like windowing, like you go 10 gain, maybe you get up to 13% fat, or maybe you can just lean gain. Um, that's going to be harder as you get more advanced. But as you get more advanced, you are going to have to cognitively control more stuff. Um, and then also on the flip side of that, if you have a weight loss client, who's a female think my, one of my favorite things to do with people is, is like, okay, you have this female who is 30 pounds overweight and she wants to get to 135 and look like this other person. Right. And so she needs to eat to be at a 500 calorie deficit. She's got to eat 1500 calories a day. If you look at the protein bumpers, which is 1.8 grams per kilogram, if she's training, so she don't want big thing with dieting is you don't want people to lose muscle, so she's got to hit that bumper. And then for hormonal health, she generally doesn't want to go under one gram per kilogram of fat. And so she's on a low carb diet just because of her constraints. Like you do the math, she's going to be at somewhere at like 90 grams of carbohydrates. So she's on a lower, unsustainable probably for the general population, lower carbohydrate diet, mm -hmm. just because of her constraints. And that's why it's really hard for females to lose weight. And there, and then we have this constrained energy model. So yes, like getting them active to a certain point will expand 
the amount of calories that they burn, but it's not additive. It's not like you can walk up 26 flights of stairs for each margarita you drink. Like that's not going to fucking work. Um, and so I, these are both equally hard scenarios. Like you putting on a ton of muscle and then you getting extremely lean or, or just losing weight inside of an environment that is not conducive to losing weight. Those are extremely hard. Most people are not in that realm. Most people, the vast majority of us are 91% of the American population at least is over fat. That means that they just need to do some stuff, like exactly what James said, like bodybuild twice a week, walk, eat a little bit better. They could probably see results just from those changes. Yeah. Now, how are, how are you going to invoke those changes? Well, you're going to be good at habit change yeah. or you're going to have to change somebody's environment. Uh, definitely want to get your thoughts here on more nutritional topics. So setting caloric needs, um, what sort of systems do you use there in terms of getting some basic guidelines when you're setting someone's calories or what sort of system you put in place? I know some guys, like I got this from Danny Lennon, Eric Helms, and I, you said on Dr. Sherry's podcast that Luke Lehman, who I got to actually meet last month, he was over here in Ireland, does this uh, method of where they just get people basically to track their intake for two weeks to see what keeps them weight stable and they just add on whatever they want then, whether it's a deficit or a, or a surplus. But uh, what sort of strategy do you use to, to calculate for caloric needs? Um, and then getting maybe to macros. I know you have a course on that too. We'll plug that course. Um, and yeah, basically just tackle um, energy and energy and macros. And I was going to say something else there with caloric needs. Oh, yes, because we said this offline. Um, it seems to be in like the more, you know, if you want to say functional medicine world, that they, they really don't have, an, no, I'm generalizing here, but there seems to be no appreciation for, for calories in, calories out. It's like, oh, you know, ca- ca- a calorie is not a calorie and it's not about calories in calories out you know it's and they, so like it's kind of like the spectrum of, at this end it's all about like it's biochemical and hormonal that drives all this you know overeating and obesity and or if someone is you know say if someone's chronically underweight and they don't intentionally mean to be underweight so we're going both ends of the spectrum there and then at the other end of all these guys say no it's simply just energy in and simply just energy out i think what, what people miss on what i said it's danny lennon too is that listen if you are losing weight you are in a deficit of energy. That is unequivocal. And if you are in a surplus, you are in a surplus of energy. That is unequivocal. But that doesn't answer the why you are in a deficit or a surplus. If you're not intentionally meaning to be, that's where then we can get into discussion about mechanism. But if people think that like they just throw the whole baby up the batwater, so that's kind of something else I want you to tackle. So uh, just to clarify the whole question, how do you go about setting calories for people? How do you go about then setting macros? And then what's your thoughts on this sort of, you know, this this uh, this uh, polarized approach of oh, it's not about calories it's all about to do with the hormones of the chemistry and the people who are saying that oh, fuck all that chemistry stuff it's simply just people are lazy need to move more and it's energy and energy out and the confusion there yeah i have a whole whiteboard on the first law of thermodynamics and so i, I think uh, the idea that hormones so you have these things that potentially regulate resting metabolic rate on the energy outside of things like hormones age uh, lean body mass all those things that uh, even genetics. And so how do we go up setting these? How do you go up setting a, a calorie and a macro number? Well, first I have to ask the question, do I actually want this person to see calories? And macros? Like that's, that's a big thing for me is like where on. So I, I, I use a ladder analogy of like, where, where do I want this person to get to? Um, and what are their goals? So if someone's goal is just to lose 20 pounds and they're already in, you know, and they're 60 pounds overweight, they might not need to track any of them. Like you might just be able to change food quality, um, do some stuff like very low hanging fruit and get them to their goal. Now you're going to have to progress along that ladder of 
cognitive based on the, the essentially the hardness or the harshness of that goal. Right. And so the, you have, I'm a big fan of figuring out maintenance calories. Like what's the most that you can eat and stay weight stable. I'm a big fan of that. Um, but that's going to take a ton of cognitive oversight. Like you're going to have to weigh and measure for two weeks, maybe more than probably a month. You're going to have to, you're going to have to track everything for a month. I mean, how many people can really do that? Probably not that many. Right? Mm. So you're already into a very remote, uh, segment of the population, a segment of the population that I love, but for the vast majority of people, that's not sustainable. So what are you going to do that is sustainable? How are you going to, where do you want this person to get to? And so I think if you're the vast, think about the vast majority of our clients, they want weight loss. Well, if you have an overweight guy who has zero training age, you can get muscle mass and weight loss at the same time. Like, so you can give both of those things. Um, you can, you can put him at a pretty substantial deficit, change his food quality, and he might not even know that he's at a deficit um, because his food volume is the same. So to me, it's an art. And I actually took off uh, the Moving Beyond Macros course from the site because oh. it's too simple. It's, it's like it's, it's five hours of, of life. It, not to say that it's, it's not complex, but I want people to know the entire – I want people to know everything because to me, if, if you just mess with macros and nutrition, you're kind of a liability. Yeah, um, yeah and, I know. I know you, what you're saying. Yeah, I know and so saying. that pisses me off. Like, you have to understand the content. Like, nothing pisses me off more than like people being like hooked up to macros the rest of their life when they don't need to be. Yeah, and they have this huge amount of cognitive. Like, most people can maintain their weight pretty easily, um, and they don't necessarily need that huge level of cognitive oversight for the general population. Now, if you want to get to seven percent body fat and be absolutely shredded, yes, we're going to need that. You're going to need to track macros, but you might not even. You might be able to kind of seesaw um fat and carbohydrates like you might not you don't you don't want to dip into like cyclical keto like that's a bad idea but if you if you just have calories are stationary fibers stationary protein is stationary and then you window everything else that allows you to be more flexible inside of your life not like oh my god i have to hit I have to 85 grams of carbs and then 400 grams of 85 grams of fat and 400 grams of carbs. Like, no, you can probably have way more wiggle room. You're going to replete glycogen. Like this is such a big deal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and if you're, uh, if you're appalled by the fact that I just said 400 grams of carbohydrates and you're one of these people that's worried about calorie in calorie out, I would implore you to stop worrying and think of, think of an expansion based model, get out of this very limited mindset of, okay, I need, limitations i need restrictions because that's that in itself makes you dangerous because whereas if you have a mindset of expansion robustness you are going to be able to help a lot more people um and and not leave them in a very very weird space with food and, and how they interact with their world mm. so uh just how do you how do you determine though a caloric need or like how do you give a bracket of calories there is it you just like people to to see how much they can eat and and, and weight maintain and track and then i get, mean you gotta you gotta find an initial number there's tons of ways to do it here's benedict catch mccardle like that's, that's what i mean like is there any yeah, like you're gonna use equations like not they're just estimations and then you got to figure out like because you're gonna have some you look at all the equations they're gonna have some thermic effect of food multiplier. So that's yeah, gonna be yeah, yeah. That's 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 the one. Times. That's the one I have. Uh, it's actually Danny Lennon's uh, Sigma Nutrition Calculator. It's very good. I think he, I think he based that off the work of Joseph Agu. I know Agu's one is multiply your body weight by by twenty four if for kg ten if it's in pounds, and then it's uh, that's for BMR. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, the, but, but the, yeah, 
and then yeah but 24 if, if it's in kilos I and mean, that's what i mean so 10 if it's pounds being more and then 24 if it's kilo being more and then you multiply by an activity then you go to your activity factor yeah uh there you can do all you're trying to figure out there everything they're all going to be different the best one for people with muscle is probably the cast mccardo because it's based off lean body mass cool um they're all of those calculators are after the same thing. They're just trying to it's get you part, to a yeah. starting point, right? Yeah. Uh, and then and then that comes the art. Like, how are you going to turn that into food? Like, uh, how much fiber is in the mixture? And like, what what are the things that you're going to keep constant? So, uh, it really is it really is an art. I, I think if I'm going to give some people just some baseline numbers of like, and this is where it gets dangerous, right? So I think uh, the majority of people like I've done a ton of research in uh, just males who are jacked. Like we're talking very, very strong, like squatting, double body weight, uh, advanced trainees. Yeah. And so them training and moving minimally like 8,000 steps. So generally going to be about 17 kcals per pound, 17 kcals per pound, which I think is going to be in the mid thirties or something like that, maybe even higher. Um, that's where their weight maintenance will be. Uh, and then if you want to lose weight, uh, you're going to, I wouldn't go lower than like 11 kcals per pound. Uh, that's kind of like, I wouldn't go lower than like BMR. I wouldn't go low. It all depends on like how big someone is. If you're, if you're relatively lean, you probably don't want to go under like a 25% deficit. Uh, and then there's, so it's all about bumpers yeah. essentially. Yeah. And, and Alan Aragon's RMR is like 25.3 kcals per kilogram. Like that's something that he's like, he's not necessarily going to go under that. Um, another one from the, uh, this is from female hormonal research is like 13.6 times lean body mass in kilos. Uh, so there's a lot, there's a lot of numbers that if you want to get good at this, you have to know, but the numbers aren't going to make you good. Yeah. Like knowing the numbers are just going to like any RD student, second year RD student can figure out how many calories you need. Oh, are yeah. they going to be, are they going to be able to help you? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and just maybe. and then just macro wise, then like uh, again context in the individual. But you know your average, say kind of individual three four times a week, you know works out pretty you know pr- pr- pretty good clip, like pretty intensely. And then outside of that, you know they do a bit of walking, but sedentary enough. Um, like macro wise, what are you setting protein there at a pound a key, or a gram per pound? You can go lower, one point eight grams per kilo. Yeah, fine. Um, better for the world. But if they like protein, they can do it. <laughs> uh, it's, it's all going to be, it's not going to blow up your kidneys. Uh, I, to me that, that is a very, very easy climb. That is yeah. not, a, this is, there's no constraints. What am I doing there? Well, I know I probably, if they're training, I need 1.8 grams per kilo. I don't want to go over one under one gram per kilo of fat. But other than that, like anything, yeah. Like those are, those are my restraints. Like my big thing is I want food quality. So I, I might use something, some kind of like maybe chronometer to track micros or something like that. Um, and I want 14 grams of fiber per thousand calories, like things like that. Like those are, so I macros, I'm always turning macros into food. And then I don't want the vast majority of my clients to think in macros. I want yeah. them to think in food. food yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want them to think in food, but if I know that if they're an advanced athlete, they're probably going to have to, really have an odd relationship with food they're have, gonna have to track this stuff just to because if you're after that level of surplus like 250 kcals uh continually day after day your appetite is going to waver like you're not you're, you're gonna subconsciously shoot yourself in the foot most of the time like that's why adherence is always the biggest thing so if you're messing with that person 
what are they going to adhere to? That is that is that is your thing. And you what probably you, want a lot of weight loss in the beginning because yeah. that's going to be more better outcomes in the end. What do you do for portion portion control, or just for people getting used to like what a portion is for their needs? I use meal templates with uh, so I'll tell people I I use like a super flexible approach. So I'll build like a meal template and I go through all this in the in the mentorship. So I'll build a meal template and then I'll have them weigh and measure for five to seven days. Yeah. And then what what invariably happens is they're like, I'm just eating kind of the same. And like, yeah, I know that there's creeping normality there, but like, yeah, I got them to where they wanted to. They saw how much they need to eat. And for guys, it's honestly like, holy shit, if I eat quality food, I get to eat a, a lot of food. A lot of food, yeah. Yeah, if yeah. I have three meals. And then females too, it's like, oh man, like I don't have to be scared of this stuff. Like I do, if I, if I eat real food, I do get a substantial portion of food. Um, it's just like, you can very see, you can see very quickly how if you have half a, half a chocolate bar, whereas you could have like two pounds of cabbage or some kind of vegetable. Like the, the, once you get into those hyper palatable energy dense foods, they suck up your ability to eat high yeah. volume. Yeah. I, I, I've seen some of your meals that you post before and I like, we very similar in that as this big massive plate with a load of veg on it. Cause we get to eat a lot more that way <laughs> in terms of volume in the stomach. Yeah. But, and there's also, I eat 70 grams of fiber a day. Like, do I wish that upon anyone else? Is that a good idea for someone with IBS or colitis? Hell no. Like they do not need that much fermentable fiber. Like, it's a bad idea. So it's all context. And if you don't understand the importance of context, you're dangerous. Yeah. And the more context you understand, the less dangerous you're going to be because you're always going to be a little bit dangerous. I know you only have a few more minutes here. Um, I have tons more questions, but we'll have to link up again another time. Can I ask, you, you, can I ask you one more quick thing? If, if you had to invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would you invite and why? Five people. Dead or alive? I was interested to hear your answer to this. I'd ask my dad, my grandfather, on my... I'd probably ask my grandfather on my dad's side. Yeah. Uh, my grand, I'd ask all my grandparents um, just because I'd, I'd want to talk to them. And just from, I mean, I, I think I live in the most information-heavy age, so there's nothing like I would need to ask something from someone. So I just want to get stories and, yeah, and connect with those people. Grand I think connection. So like, that's what most of us are lacking right now in our lives. So if I had, if I had the opportunity to, to have dinner with five people, I wouldn't be speaking about this shit. I'd be, I'd be trying to connect. Beautiful. That's a great way to end it. Ben, thanks so much. Uh, definitely get back on because we've tons more I want to talk about. Like I really, really like to get more of your thoughts on like functional medicine and courses you've taken and, you know, even more things on resources and even get a little more. I think too, like you've got so much to offer in terms of like strength and conditioning that people like, because people, I think people obviously you just as the functional medicine nutrition guys, like eh, Ben actually knows quite a lot about training too. So I'd like to expose that to the world as well. But uh, listen, we, we've been on now for an hour and a half. You've got shit to do. I've got shit to do. Um, so uh, thanks so much for your time. And uh, sure, I'll say goodbye to you now offline. But for everyone listening, I'll have everything in the show notes in terms of Ben's website. Check out his work, man. It's, it's just, it's unreal. His Facebook post. It's so funny because every Facebook post you put up, it starts off with this like really like engaging like little first bracket or paragraph. And then it's always like read more and you click it. It's like this big article. You're like, yeah. <laughs> getting into it so it's uh, fantastic but uh for now from myself robbie burke and from dr ben house take care be well and stay strong